This episode contains descriptions of body horror and gore. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is an excerpt from The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with disillusion. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we reimagine ghostly tales from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we continue our month-long special on the work of Edgar Allan Poe. Each week in January, we're retelling one of the author's gothic tales in honor of his birthday. And today, for the third and penultimate episode of the series, we're adapting The Mask of the Red Death, a grim parable about the inevitability of death and the inhumanity of those who try to evade its grasp. Originally published in 1842, the original narrative centers around a prince who thinks he can use his fortune to protect himself from an epidemic decimating his country. Our adaptation will move this story from a castle to an island. And while Poe's version suggests it's set in medieval Europe, we're moving our story to America's Gilded Age, a time when wealthy robber barons wielded the power of kings. I'll be narrating our story as Robert Robisher, a young man who seeks shelter from the plague with his affluent cousin, Prospero. Unfortunately, Robert will soon learn that no place is safe from the terror of the Red Death. Coming up, a nation descends into madness. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. To whoever finds this letter, 
by the time you read this, I will be dead. I'm using the last moments of my wretched life to write an account of the events that took place on Coral Isle this winter. There's nothing that can be done to change the past, but I would like to believe that there's someone out there who can learn from my sins. If this story can save a single soul, then maybe my death will not be in vain. It began eight months ago. At the time, I was living in the city and studying to become a physician. At first, it was just gossip. The death tolls seemed impossible to believe. They said that in Europe it was spreading like wildfire, burning through whole cities within days. According to reports, it began with small red bumps that moved from the arms to the chest and then the face. This would be followed by an intolerable burning sensation, but it was the final symptom that gave the plague its name, the Red Death. Blood seeped from pustules that covered the victim's body. It oozed down the cheeks, soaked into the hair and pooled in the ears until a red mask formed over the patient's head. Death came soon after. I was sure the stories must be exaggerated, but even if it was as terrible as they said, it was half a world away. A plague that killed so swiftly could not possibly travel across a vast ocean. And so life in America went on uninterrupted. I studied and attended lectures, making the most of my time before the date of my licensing exam. In the week before the test, I decided to devote myself entirely to studying. I retreated to my apartments, notified my friends and sent my housekeeper away. I read until my eyes ached. When Monday, the day of the exam dawned, I supposed I was as ready as I could ever be. As I left my home, I noticed how empty the streets were. No one came or went from the fine townhouses and the cafes were all closed up. I might have found it strange, but it was early. Perhaps the city was still sleeping. As I neared the hospital, a rank stench wafted toward me, the sickly, pungent odor of putrid meat. I stepped closer, confused when I noticed the sound of wails coming from the building. My pulse quickened. Something was wrong. The door swung open, and a young woman in a nurse's uniform lurched out, leaning against one of the nearby columns. I ran forward, but before I'd come within 20 feet, she cried out, Stop! Don't come any closer! I begged her pardon and asked, Do you know where the administration office is? I'm scheduled to take an exam at this hospital. She laughed bitterly. <laughs> this isn't a hospital anymore. It's a morgue. My throat went dry. Why? What happened? She looked at me as if I was mad and replied, The Red Death happened. She gave an anguished groan as red bumps emerged on her arms. I watched in horror as they spread up her neck and across her cheeks. As the first drops of blood leaked from the gruesome boils, she began to scream. My fear took over then. I turned and ran. 
When I returned to my apartments, I slammed the door behind me and locked the deadbolt. My heart was racing. I glanced around frantically, as if my study might contain some weapon I could use to fight off disease. That was when I spotted the telegram sitting on my desk, one I'd left unopened during my week of studying. It was from Pierce Prospero, a cousin on my mother's side. I'd never spent much time with my cousin. We didn't exactly run in the same circles. I was no pauper, but Prospero was one of the richest men in the country. He was the ultimate arbiter of social standing among the upper classes. Normally, I would have been thrilled to receive a telegram from Prospero. I'd always hoped that once I became a doctor, my cousin might consider introducing me to the country's upper crust. I was so eager then, so desperate to be considered one of them. But in that moment, all I could think was that perhaps the telegram contained some horrific news about my relatives. I quickly unfolded the paper and began to read. Plague has made the city unbearably dull. Stop. I shall be collecting a few of my most valuable friends and retreating to my summer cottage on Coral Isle. Stop. It would be advantageous to have a doctor on hand. Stop. I shall send a coach on Monday evening. Stop. I sank into a nearby armchair, relief washing over me. I could be safe on Coral Isle, far away from the deadly miasmas of the city. I took a deep breath. I had to find a chest and pack my things. I was going to escape this death trap. They came for me just before nightfall. I was waiting by the window when a grim black coach pulled up outside my home. Two men were perched in the driver's box. One was dressed in a footman's livery and the other wore a long red cloak. This second man glanced up at the window as if he'd known I would be standing there. A chill ran up my spine unbidden. I supposed I should be grateful. This carriage had come to deliver me to safety. Still, I could not ignore the sense of foreboding that came over me as I gazed down at the solemn black coach. I swallowed my dread and went downstairs. The footman rushed to help me with my trunk but the man in red did not leave his seat. I peered out the window as we passed through empty streets. At first I wondered if the city was completely abandoned. Then we entered the slums. People were crowded into the decaying tenements. They were slumped in doorways or sprawled in the street. Some even lay dying in the open sewers. The nurse at the hospital had only just begun to bleed, but these people had clearly been suffering for longer. Crusted red masks covered their mouths and eyes. As I peered out at this frenzy of human misery, something slammed against the window. A boy clung to the edge of the carriage. Open sores on his face glistened with blood. His eyes were wild as he screamed for me to let him in. I shot back in horror as he pounded on the glass. For a moment, I was terrified that he might break it. Then the carriage went over a bump and he was thrown off into the street. After that, I drew the curtains. We traveled late into the night, but I was too shaken from the day's events to sleep. Eventually, long after midnight, we reached an empty port where a ferry was waiting. 
We boarded the boat, and as the two coachmen set about unmooring us from the dock, I settled myself onto a narrow wooden bench. I watched the black waves lapping at the side of the boat, and soon, under the influence of that lulling sound, my eyelids grew heavy. Gradually, I slipped into an uneasy sleep. I awoke as the ferry pulled into a private dock. A set of stone steps ran up the perilous cliffs at the edge of the beach. Just beyond loomed the cold, imperious Carmine Court. My cousin's so-called summer cottage was a palatial mansion that blocked out the newly risen sun. The slate roofs were topped with boxy chimneys and cold black iron spires that pierced the summer sky. The owner of that home was waiting for me on the dock. Prospero greeted me from twenty feet away with a barrage of questions about my health and the state of my skin. Once I had convinced him of my wellness, he came closer and welcomed me with a hearty slap on the back. Welcome, cousin. Wonderful to see you here safe and sound. The rest of us left the city as soon as it began. Coral Isle is the safest place to be. No one steps off this dock without my explicit permission. If there is even a whiff of exposure among the staff, they are sent back to the mainland straight away. I furrowed my brow. It seemed cruel to send loyal servants away to die, but I supposed it was necessary to prevent transmission. I asked my cousin, so, the two footmen who drove me here will not stay? Prospero gave me a look of confusion. Two footmen? I only sent one. Coming up, Robert finds that Prospero's fortress is not the safe haven he was promised. The world is full of con men fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. I stood on the dock, gaping at my cousin Prospero. My mind was reeling. Just yesterday, I was studying for my exams, well on my way to becoming a doctor. But now nothing was certain. 
I'd been forced to flee from a deadly plague to Prospero's island fortress, and apparently I was hallucinating an imaginary footman. Prospero called to the footman on the ferry. My cousin says that a man in a red cape rode beside you all the way from the city. Who was he? The footman glared at me. He replied, Your cousin must be mad. I made the trip alone. There was no red-caped man. Prospero turned back to me and muttered, Normally such disrespect would be met with correction, but there is no need. That man will probably be dead in a few days. Come, let us forget this nonsense and get back to the house. You're just in time for breakfast. I stared at the ferry. I could have sworn that the man in red had been on it when we set off from the mainland. But now, there was no trace of him. I sighed in resignation and reluctantly allowed my cousin to lead me up the steps. From the outside, Carmine Court had the look of a stalwart fortress, but as we entered its great stone doors, my mouth opened in surprise. Inside, it was an elaborate, twisting labyrinth. Prospero led me on a tour through its winding halls when we came upon the strangest part yet. It was the place he called the Gothic Corridor. The corridor was located at the very center of the house. It was composed of seven chambers arranged in a circle. Each room was decorated with a different color. Prospero guided me through each one. The first was fitted with blue carpets, blue furnishings, and blue stained glass windows. Then, a door at the far end led into a white room appointed in a similar fashion. Beyond this were five more chambers in orange, yellow, green, violet, and black. The rooms were encircled by a narrow hall furnished with electric lamps. The lights shone through the seven stained glass windows, producing a dramatic effect in the rooms beyond. Each room I stepped into awed me more than the last, and none more than the black chamber. Unlike the other rooms, this one's windows were tinted with a deep, dark red, making the space appear as if it were drenched in blood. Adding to its eerie effect was an enormous ebony clock. As I stared at its monstrous hands moving by the second, it produced a dull, deep ticking that chipped away at my composure. Then, on the hour, it let forth a thunderous clanging. I jumped as the nerve-shattering sound echoed through the corridor. Prospero chuckled. <laughs> no need to be anxious, cousin. The dangers are outside, not inside. Grim ballrooms aside, Carmine Court was a paradise. As I joined Prospero's dozens of guests at breakfast that morning, I learned that at least 400 others were quartered around the island. Some were at Carmine, but others had smaller estates of their own. There were swimming pools, tennis courts, and even an exotic animal menagerie, all for the guests to enjoy in peace, away from the scourge of the plague. As I feasted on my eggs benedict, I quickly learned that Prospero's friends avoided discussion of the Red Death entirely. They mostly chatted about business, suppressing strikes at their factories or raising the hours at their warehouses. And if the plague was mentioned, it was only to complain about the delays it had caused in shipping. 
As I eavesdropped on these conversations, a guest across from me sent back her plate of foie gras. I watched as the servant gritted his teeth as he took it away. Over the next few weeks of my stay, I observed more of this behavior, the arrogance of the court's guests and the resentment of its staff. But while others hardly noticed such things, I was growing troubled by their excess. It started with little moments, but then came the incident in late September. Prospero had a little brown monkey he was quite fond of. The animal's handler was a stringy boy of 15. He would dress the monkey in a silk suit and bring him out for our entertainment. One evening at dinner, a drunken guest pulled on the monkey's tail and the animal flew into a rage. I watched as it lashed out at the man, scratching and biting. Prospero was appalled. He declared that it should be sent away, along with its handler. I looked at my cousin, horrified. The boy begged Prospero to let him stay, but my cousin simply snapped his fingers and another servant appeared to drag the boy away. A moment later, the guests resumed their lively conversation and the music continued. I looked around in disbelief. I felt my chest grow tighter and my face grow hot until finally I cried out, How could you send him away like that? Prospero gave me a cold look. If I don't have a monkey, what use do I have for a monkey handler? I didn't have the words to reply. After that day, I had a hard time enjoying myself. Memories of the miserable slums I'd seen on my way out of the city began to haunt me. In my dreams, I saw the bloody face of the boy who'd climbed on my carriage, pounding on the windows and screaming. But I couldn't leave the island. As far as I knew, it was the only safe place left in the world. No one could step foot on the island without Prospero's approval. At least, that was what Prospero said. Although I did wonder every now and then about the man in the red cape. That first day, Prospero had tried to convince me that he was an illusion, but I didn't understand how that could be. The man had seemed so real, and if he'd truly been there on the ferry, he must have gotten off onto the island. I tried to tell Prospero this, but he'd become quite skilled at brushing off my concerns. After some time, I suppose my memory had betrayed me. I believed I really was safe within the walls of Carmine Court. Eventually, I'd come to discover just how much of a fool I was. Autumn passed into winter, and a thick blanket of snow covered the carefully cut lawns. Prospero announced his plans to hold a medieval masquerade on New Year's Eve. I never planned on going, but when the day of the ball arrived, I found it hard to resist. Prospero had planned the party of the century. He'd had fireworks shipped in and ordered bolts of damask and silk for costumes. His mask was sterling silver studded with emeralds that had once belonged to Marie Antoinette. There would be fine champagne and caviar-stuffed oysters. By sunset, the whole estate seemed to crackle with an electric energy. The ball was held in the Gothic corridor. As I entered the blue room in my modest black cape and harlequin mask, 
I gaped at the spectacle of it all. Bejeweled revelers streamed in through the doors. They wore velvets and chiffon and all manner of mad and fantastical masks. There were birds, skulls and devilish chimeras. I was overwhelmed by a sea of color. It seemed there were dresses of every hue and shade in existence, except of course, red. Prospero had forbidden his guests from wearing red. This was a night for pleasures. No one wanted to be reminded of the Red Death. I made my way into the white room where a group of musicians were whipping a throng of dancers into a frenzy. In spite of my misgivings, I found myself swept up in the delirious atmosphere of the evening. Suddenly, a sound rang out through the chamber. It was the striking of the clock. The musicians went silent. The people around me froze. Then, the last bell faded away and the music resumed. The tolling of that dreadful clock brought me back to my senses. I suddenly felt awkward and out of place. I retreated from the dance floor and downed a few glasses of champagne in the hopes of banishing my sudden melancholy. As I watched the dancers, I saw something out of the corner of my eye, something red. I glanced frantically around and spotted it again, ruby fabric disappearing beyond the doorway. I rushed into the orange room just in time to see a flash of crimson slipping around the corner. My heart pounded. The guests had been forbidden from wearing red. What if it was... I tore through the yellow room and then the violet and green ones. Finally, I came to the threshold of the black room. It was empty, except for a man in a red cloak, standing before the stained glass window. A cold sweat sprang up on my neck. The figure turned toward me, and my eyes went wide with horror. His face was coated in a layer of crusted blood. It was so thick that it obscured his features in a hideous red mask. I let out a scream of terror and fled, I rushed through the crowd, pushing people out of my way until I ran straight into my cousin and fell to the floor. Laughing, Prospero helped me up and asked, <laughs> Where are you hurrying off to? My voice rose to a hysterical pitch. It's the man in the red cape! He's here! Prospero looked at me with irritation. Oh, haven't I told you to let that go? God, you're exhausting, always grimacing like a school marm. You haven't even done me any good here as a doctor. Perhaps we don't need one after all. As he finished speaking, the clock struck midnight. Suddenly, Prospero's eyes went wide. He was looking at something behind me. I spun around and came face to face with the red figure. Prospero screamed over the bells. You! How dare you! I demand you remove that disgusting costume! The cloaked man did not move. The last chime faded away, and for a moment, all was silent and still. Then the figure turned and walked back toward the black chamber. 
The crowd parted for him, pressing back against the walls. As he stepped beyond the doorway, Prospero let out a cry of frustration. He drew a dagger and ran forward. Hearing his approach, the man in red spun around to face his attacker. He held up a hand. Suddenly, Prospero's body twisted, his face contorted in agony, and he collapsed. But he did not lie still. He convulsed on the floor, screaming. Boils sprang up all over his skin, then they erupted in blood. Cries of fury and despair went around the room. The crowd rushed at the red figure. As they fell upon him, the man's robes collapsed, as if there had been nothing beneath it. The red death began to spread through the crowd. Lumps expanded across their flesh. Priceless silks were soaked in blood. People wailed and tore at their clothes, trampling each other in a desperate effort to escape. But I did not panic or run. I knew it would do no good. It was too late for me, too late for all of us. The Red Death had come to Coral Isle. Some died within minutes. Most were gone after an hour. I was the only one to last this long. The sun is rising now. As I write this, I feel the burning sensation spreading across my left arm. It won't be long. I can only hope that the person who finds this will believe my story and heed my warning. The Red Death is not like any other pestilence. It can find you anywhere. It does not spread through spit or air. We have called it upon ourselves. God forgive me for my part in this story. God forgive us all. Edgar Allan Poe's life was a turbulent one, and illness never seemed far from his mind. He lost his mother to tuberculosis as a little boy, and when he was 22, his brother died, and his cause of death was most likely the same disease. Then, only a year later, he lived through an outbreak of cholera that killed one of his closest friends. All three of these losses were tragic, but they had not yet taken everything from him. In 1836, Edgar married his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia Clem. Sadly, six years after their marriage, she began coughing up blood, a telltale sign of tuberculosis. Five years later, in 1847, she finally died. It was around the time that Virginia contracted the disease that Poe began writing The Mask of the Red Death, a condemnation of wealthy upper classes trying to buy their way out of illness. Money does not make you immune to death, but Poe would have understood that it can provide protections from communicable diseases. When cholera engulfed his home of Baltimore, the wealthy fled to their country houses. There, affluent families had the space to quarantine a sick relative. Poe's family did not. 
Poe's rage emerges in his writing. It shows itself in the solemn ticking of a clock, reminding revelers of their impending doom. It comes out in the eerie black room that casts a red pall over healthy aristocrats, and it takes a human form in the red-robed figure who kills the prince who thought himself invulnerable. The Mask of the Red Death is a kind of wish-fulfillment. In reality, the wealthy often escape contagion unscathed, but in the grim world of Poe's fiction, darkness and decay and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with the final episode of our series on Edgar Allan Poe. Join us next week for an adaptation of Poe's famous poem, The Raven. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.